filters have so much to do with the world that we choose to design. Uh, Walter Lippmann said in 1922, the real world is altogether too big, too complex, too fleeting for direct acquaintance. And although we have to act in that environment, we have to reconstruct it on a simpler model so that we can manage with it. And that is what we do all the time. In 1967, psychologists had a bunch of college students in a room, and they were listening on headphones to recorded messages about smoking. But those messages were obscured by static. If you pressed a button, you could temporarily get rid of the static. They found that the smokers always got rid of the static when the messages were refuting the link between cancer and smoking. If you were a non-smoker, you would get rid of the static when it talked about the connection. We like our messages, like our cigarettes, I guess, filtered. In terms of our biology, and I think this is a really important thing to note, if you believe, and I don't, that there is a real separation between the mind and the body, then I'm here to assure you that this is as much physical as it is mental. And I'm also here to convince you that actually there's very little difference between the two. I remember when I was a kid, I read uh, Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception. I'm sure, given that you're designers, many of you have read that book, which is all about LSD and his experimentation. And what he theorized and what others have affirmed was that the drugs did not induce hallucinations per se. What it did was remove or impair the filters on our senses that are basically wired in, filters on sight and sound and touch and taste. And when all of those additional sensations came flooding in, they overwhelmed us. We tried to make sense of them. The result, hallucinations because we couldn't interpret or order all the sensations that we have. Those filters enable us to live in the world. Interestingly, emotion is another filter. There was a great study, actually it wasn't a study, it was a person who had a big injury in his brain, very localized, and basically it deactivated his ability to have emotions. You'd figure, Hell, that's great. You got a Vulcan on your hands. You have Mr. Spock. He'll be so logical. He'll never be distracted. Well, the guy's life was absolutely destroyed and not for the reasons that you think about, you know, being able to make connections or living in the world. It was much more basic than that. He could not decide anything because most, almost all of our decisions are based in some way on emotion. If asked to choose which do you want to write with, the red pen or the blue pen, his mind would go down a deep rabbit hole of, well, the red pen offers this and the blue pen offers this and the red pen has this and the blue pen has that to the end where there was no choice that he could make, whether it was breakfast cereal, choice of pen, much less a partner in life. The guy was completely unhinged because he had no emotion. It's a filter. 
It allows us to eliminate things without thinking about it. We are wired with filters, and we're wired for filters. There's this Emory University professor named Drew Weston who wrote a book called The Political Brain, The Role of Emotion in Deciding the Fate of the Nation. And basically, they did a test. It was three groups. One was a control group, and then the, the others were either confirmed Republicans or confirmed Democrats. And they were confronted with statements from a member of their own party that showed them to be lying or pandering. And then they were presented, well, that was the second one. The first one was they were presented with someone from the opposing party's statements, lying and pandering, and then from their own. And they were wired up to an fMRI. And what they found out was that when faced with the lies of the opposing party, the reasoning sections of their brains lit completely up there's a lot of firing and, and shooting around in the reasoning parts of the brains, and it was quickly reconciled and uh, easily dealt with. When faced with the lying statement of their own party, and this astonished the researchers, the reasoning part of the brain stayed completely blank, completely black, no sparks at all. Instead, the emotional sectors started lighting up hugely. The places in your brain where you usually experience fear and confusion. And it was just firing like mad. And then at one point, once the test subject had figured out a way to reconcile this lying statement. In other words, once the test subject lied to themselves sufficiently to be able to accept the lying of the member of the party as somehow acceptable or true, when they finished deceiving themselves, those centers of their brain quieted down and they got a shot of dopamine. Basically, they were rewarded for effectively lying to themselves with the very chemical compound that we enjoy when we take cocaine. They basically got a hit, they got high off of lying to themselves. That is wiring. That's not just mental, that is absolutely physical. And then of course, we have to filter because our brains get so full. There's another great study, and it's true, I love these pop science psychosocial studies, but most of them, at least the ones that I cite, are based on good methodology. You know that most people can hold seven numbers in their head, but after that it gets really, really tough. I mean, some people can do it, some people can't hold that many, but most of us, that's why phone numbers tend to be seven, that kind of thing. Let's stipulate that we can, we can hold seven numbers in our head at most, and after that things get really dicey. They did a study, they, I can't remember the name of the university in this case, where they had people in a room, they would give them a series of numbers and then have them go down the hall to another room and tell the person there what the sequence of numbers was. That person would be interrupted on their way down the hall by somebody holding a tray of snacks. And they had a choice between taking a big piece of chocolate cake or a nice shiny apple. The people who were holding longer sequences in their heads 
would choose the cake far more often than the people who were holding the short sequences in their heads. If you were holding one, two, three numbers in your head, you were far more likely to choose the apple than if you were holding five, six, seven numbers in your head. Why is that? When you're confronted with a choice, you have to weigh the benefits. You know, oh, well, if I have chocolate cake now, I'm going out to dinner tonight. You know, I really don't need that. It doesn't look that great. That takes brain space. If your brain is taken up with a series of numbers, you'll go on instinct. And the instinct says cake. The, the intellect says apple. And so your brain is full. It's filtered. It's all about filters. When I think about the kinds of shortcuts we use that we don't know about, you start to wonder whether or not we have any free will at all. Another great study, uh, a person is stopped in a hallway by a researcher holding a hot cup of coffee and asks the person to hold the hot cup of coffee and says, what do you think of this person based on this information that I'm giving you? And you're supposed to offer an evaluation of somebody you've never met. Then they do the same study where the person is going down the hall, asks someone to hold their iced coffee, and does the exact same thing. When handed the warmer cup, they give a much more positive assessment of the person they haven't known. Warm is warm. It's, uh, there was a study at the Max Planck Institute, and I couldn't believe it. I went, I went over and actually looked at the data to make sure that I was interpreting it right and that I was reading the conclusions right. It found, it had, it was another fMRI study. It found that if you make a decision, you actually haven't made the decision when you think you've made it. When asked to choose something and then press a button at the moment of choice, and they were doing the fMRI and they knew what the signature of choice looked like, when you pressed your button to say you'd chosen, it was a full seven seconds before you'd actually chosen. So you don't even know what you've based it on. You don't even know when you've made that decision. You probably all know that there are more neurons in your gut than there are in your head. I mean, your gut produces its own serotonin and its own dopamine. And when you think you've got butterflies in your stomach because you're, you're nervous and it's making your stomach nervous, it's often the other way around. Your stomach is registering anxiety and sending it up to the brain. And if we don't have free will, how can we choose how to act? Which you need to keep in mind when you're creating anything. When you create it, do you mean it? Do you feel it? Do you know what you're creating? At the turn of the century, when America, well, the turn of the last century, I should say, the turn of the, uh, of the 20th century, in the first couple of decades, America was very busy with small cooperatives and little companies building a telephone network across the country. In Russia, after the revolution, they could have done the exact same thing, but instead they developed, to a much greater extent than America did, the loudspeaker. And the reason is, is that we preferred the chaos of the many to many, or the one to anyone, and they preferred, I think I'm being overly simplistic here, the order of one too many. 
See, now we have a situation where it's many to many, and soon there'll be very little technology that separates us from all the rest. What kinds of filters are going to go into play then? I mean, our tools shape us. When we started walking on two legs, our grains grew bigger. Many scientists think that we started walking on two legs because we picked up clubs that enabled us to hunt and defend ourselves, and so we survived to stand on two legs. There's a strong contingent of scientists who believe that we don't just make our tools, they make us too. We co-evolve. You guys are interested in design, you're designers, you're making those tools. It's a huge responsibility. How do you connect the world? How do you filter the world? We can't function without filters. How do we make sure the filters don't wall us off? How do we make sure that this communication, that this new technology that can unite us so thoroughly doesn't end up dividing us in the end because of design flaws built in that separate us in precisely the wrong way? It's really a mystery.